today on the Rita Mimi Do It Show. I believe that we do everything that we do in life because we are seeking love. I really believe that. Every single decision we make, every time that we uh, we tamp down, we dampen our spirit, our energy. We don't say the thing. We don't do the thing. We don't show up as like what we know is burning inside of us. And this is why we don't need to find our voice. It's in there. And the reason that we feel anxiety, stress, unhappiness often is because we're not listening to our own selves because we think that we have to use some other voice in order to be worthy of love. But what if you accepted that I'm already worthy of love? I don't have to earn that. Because of Rita, I got on the news. Because of Rita, I had 15 speaking engagements last year. Because of Rita, I've become a six-figure business owner. Because, because, of, Rita, because of Rita, I've doubled my revenue by doubling my clients. I'm Rita, business strategist, speaker, and success coach. Also known as the gal who went on 35 dates in 35 days and vlogged all about it. And this is the Rita Mimi Do It Show where every week I bring you the real information about what it takes to go all in on your dreams so that you can build a profitable business and live a positive life. Some weeks I'll have a guest and others it'll be just you and me, like we're out on my deck sharing a bottle of wine. The conversation, yeah, it'll be that real. As I record this, we are still in the middle of social distancing and lockdowns and the impacts and the effects that are being felt from COVID-19. It's March 2020. We are in the middle of all of it. But business goes on. Life goes on. The show, as my guest would tell you today, goes on. And I want to still bring you information that is relevant to your business both now and going forward. So the impacts of this have been felt in a variety of ways, but one industry that is really feeling it is the speaking industry. Whether you are a paid professional speaker, whether you use speaking to grow your business, or whether speaking was going to be part of your business model, the impacts are really incredible. But that's no reason to not be paying attention to this or to be taking action or to be moving forward. So I brought today a guest on who I know you are going to love. He is a performer. He is a master storyteller. He is an incredible speaker. He is a speaking coach and expert. He is a comedian that will keep you laughing. He's going to be just somebody that I know that you're going to love and want to be with and spend time with for the rest of your days. Um, and I'm really excited that he decided to come here today. So he hosts a podcast called The Mic Drop Moment, which is incredible as well. And you're, you're going to hear everything he does. I could talk about him for 20 hours before bringing him on, but I'm just going to go ahead and dive in and introduce you to him now. So Mike, welcome to the show. I am really excited to have you here, first of all, because I don't think I've ever met anyone who talks as quickly as I do or as much as I do. I'm really, I feel really bad for the people that are going to listen on like two times speed for this one, but I'm really anticipating this being like an episode of Gilmore Girls, especially with your love <laughs> your love of coffee. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny. One of my friends, when I launched my podcast, The Mic Drop Moment, she said, uh, you're the only podcast I can't listen to at double speed <laughs> because you already speak so quickly. 
Yep. And, uh, and it's actually, it's really funny. That's one of the things I teach when I'm teaching public speaking and storytelling is the myths about speaking speed. And so we could talk about that later if you want, but anyway, yes, I'm happy to be here with another fast talker. Yes. I was, I was doing my own, I was speaking at a conference and this woman came up to me and she's like, you're really good, but you know, you just talk way too fast. And I think you really need to like slow it down. I'm like, no, because that's not me and that's not how I talk. And then it's going to be really uncomfortable for everybody. So, you know, I'd rather you be uncomfortable than everybody else. Right. Right. So that, well, one that, I mean, that my audience who doesn't know you, and if you don't know Mike, you're going to know him by the end of this. And, and, but you're, your thing is one statement that you've said about storytelling and speaking that I love is that the stories that we tell ourselves dictate our lives because what we tell ourselves is what we tell other people about us, right? And then that's what other people tell other people about us. And that kind of ends up defining us. And so if you have these stories that aren't serving you, just rewrite them, right? Which is what you hear all the time. Just rewrite those stories. So my question for you that I know everybody asks all the time is just, how? How do you do it? And I guess really, what's an example of a story that you've had to rewrite in your life to kind of illustrate that? Well, it's interesting, right? Because the the primary thing that I do with people is helping them with oral storytelling. So getting on stage, getting on video, getting on a podcast and leveraging stories and storytelling, their own stories, stories from customers, stories from the world to be able to reach their audience and really help them understand whatever it is we need them to understand. But one of the things that comes from that all the time is that there's often some story we're telling ourselves that's stopping us from being able to get in front of people and be ourselves, which is, you know, it's so interesting, Rita, because we celebrate all of the trailblazers. We celebrate all of the people who do the, not even just the weird thing, but they stand in front of the world and they say, this is me. This is what I'm like. And we, we celebrate them and we say, oh my God, they're so unique and they really are them. And yet for ourselves, we're not that generous. We say, well, if I showed up in front of the world, they wouldn't like me. If I showed up in front of the world, I wouldn't be enough. If I showed up in front of the world, it needs a filter. And yet we can look at other people and recognize, oh my gosh, they took the filter off and they're amazing. And so where does that come from? Because I think if you're, if you're trying to be somebody, and I love working with, with public speakers and, and not even public speakers, but just entrepreneurs who realize they want to speak in their business, who have like a movement thereafter, who are like, this is the movement I'm trying to do. And when you think about people who've created movements, it's always people who really are comfortable showing up in front of the world and offering us what they have. And so any time where there's a block to that, any time where there's a block to you getting on a podcast, getting on a panel interview, stepping on stage, getting on a call with somebody, anything that blocks you from doing that as yourself, we need to get rid of that. And often that's a story we're telling ourselves. And so, you know, there's a whole bunch of things you can do there. But one of the things that's really interesting, I call it the WTF moments in your life. And for me, that's the what the friction moments. And it's looking and saying, where were moments when I was forced? And there's this timeline activity I do with people during workshops or in private coaching sessions where we map out on a big old piece of paper, a big old like butcher piece of paper, like kids use to draw. And Mm -hmm. we go through and like from birth, to today, and then five to 10 years from now, we keep going. And we just put little ticks, like, what were you doing each year? And we do it above the line and below the line. So we draw a line in the middle of the paper Mm -hmm. horizontally. 
And then above the line are all the like, wow, this is really positive. And below the line, you plot all of the like, you know, pit moments. And then you go through that and you say, okay, well, what did I learn there? What happened? What, what people discover is there's often things that impacted them that they have no idea that that's what's going on. And so in great storytelling, the real key is that there's uh, something is going on there's a push to make a change or something changes it and a new world is established. That's at its simplest storytelling. So what we do when we look at those, those low moments and those high moments in your life is to say, well, what was the world before? What was leading us up to that great moment and that low moment? And then who did you become after that? Because what happened to you is not that interesting. Like we've all had a lot of things happen to us. What happened to you is not interesting. And even if you think of a great film or a great play or a great book, it's not what happened to the characters that we're interested in. It's who did they become because of it? Because of it, yeah. And yeah, often that. that's where we need to rewrite some of the stories because sometimes the who we became is a smaller version of us, is a hidden version of us. And if we can look back, we can then say, wait a second, I made that choice to become that person. I can now see that and I can make a choice to become someone new. And that's yeah, really okay. a resonant thing. There's so much that happens just by default without us knowing or see. So when I, I used to be a dating coach before I was oh, a business strategist, right? So, I mean, it's long, my story is a long story, but that's, I went from lawyer to dating coach to business coach. And as a dating coach, I did the same thing. I would have my clients close their eyes and kind of play a movie. I said, pretend your relationship was a movie, right? And you're watching from the beginning of it all the way to the the end of your last relation, like their past relationship. Play it like a movie. And then every time you feel that gut feeling, right, that, oh, there's something off or oh, whether you followed it or you didn't in that relationship, like I want you to write it down, right? So that would be like the equivalent of below the line, right? And then every time that like you followed your gut and it was like, you know, good, something good and positive. So they could see very clearly all the signs that they ignored, right? That was just like, <laughs> this relationship is when I need to run really quickly. For And they're like, oh yeah, like the time I found that weird photo in the drawer, but I kind of closed it and pretended like I I remember that now. And so they're watching the movie play and they're like, man, this, this relationship was a shit show from like the beginning, right? Like I should have never been in it. And then they do identify. And because of this breakup, this is who I became. And usually in relationships, it was always a smaller version of right. themselves. So, I, I mean, I always say dating and business building are the exact same thing. So similar. Exact same thing. So similar. So you have a background in improv. And when I was, you know, doing my own mic research and, you know, it seems like your career has been a very yes and type of trajectory, right? Where it's like, hey, Mike, are you willing to do this? Yes. And blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, you want to try this? Yes. And and so you're saying yes and before you even know how to do the thing <laughs> that you're, right, that you're saying yes to, which I think is a quality of a lot of people that I know who are successful in business is having that mindset of, sure, and I'll figure, I'll figure it out as I go. But what enables you to do that? Like, what do you think it is that enables you to be like, yep, I'm just going to go ahead and figure it out. I'm going to say, yes, figure it out later. You know, I don't, I don't know where that comes from, right? There's, there's people that you meet and they're like, I remember the moment when I was seven years old, <laughs> when it all became clear. And it's like, I don't, I just don't have that like Judy Bloom version of my life written down. But I do know that, you know, from a really young age, I grew up, my, my mom was 15 when I was born and, uh, you know, we met all the statistics of that, right? Of like, we didn't have money, we struggled, we did this, we had all the things all along. And I realized that the only way that things change is if you do things that you don't know how to do. Like, did I know how to go to college? No. And in fact, nobody else in my family did either. Did I know how to 
uh, to go in front when I was in high school and I couldn't afford, I got invited to this national youth leadership forum on law and constitution, oh. in Washington, DC. And at the time I thought it was like some really big honor. Maybe it is, but I think it was just like, if you can pay, you could go to it <laughs> kind <know>. of thing. And <laughs> yeah. so, but it was super cool. We got to go to the Supreme court. And at the time I wanted to be, I was obsessed with the TV show, Ali McBeal. Do you remember oh the show? Oh my gosh, of course. We, I, I'm a past lawyer. So yes, so, I do. <laughs> so I wanted to be, I was like, I'm going to be like a really cool lawyer like Ali. Like, I'm going to be a super cool lawyer. Remember how, dance in the bathroom. It's going to be great. And right? remember how yeah. obsessed everyone was? Like, the world was so scandalized by her short skirts. Yes. <laughs> it seemed like such an innocent time back then. <laughs> Right. Like, yeah, like that was our concern. Yeah. And so I wanted to I wanted to be a lawyer. So I so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to this law and constitution thing. But we couldn't afford it. And I had to like I had to have a suit. And it's like I didn't have a suit because I lived in like a really small town in Arizona where I never had to have a suit. And so I had to figure out like, okay, so what do you do when you need the money to go? What do you I I went around to the different the Rotary and the Kiwanis Club and the Seroptimist in our little town. And I talked about what an opportunity I use story really to say like, let's look at what the world is now for our town and the people in it. And let's imagine that if we had opportunities like this and you were part of it, what could happen? And I was able to raise the money for my flight, for my ticket, for my hotel, and to go buy like some outfits so that I could walk into the Supreme Court and not look uh, like I, (laughs) you know, like I belonged somewhere else. And so I realized that at some point that in order for us to have new things, Uh, And new things could be new stories that we create about ourselves. They could be new uh, physical things, new experiences. That inherently means you have to do something you don't know how to do. You have to do something that you didn't do before. And I just thought, I don't. When I learned about improv, finally, when I was when I I dropped out of college to become an actor, and uh, I was really, I guess, not a great actor because I found myself in improv, which was like, wait, I can create the script as I go. This is genius. I love this. And when I first learned about the idea of yes and, it was like, oh yeah, this makes so much sense to me because that's, we have to accept what is. We can be mad about it. We can be angry about it. We don't have to love what is, but we cannot change what is. So we have to look at what is going on and say, okay, so based on what's happening, what can I do with it? And for me, that was just a way that I'd always looked at my life. And so it made a lot of sense when I found it in Improv Later. Well, you know, it's so applicable right now, right? <laughs> Whenever somebody's listening to this, we are in the middle of the whole COVID-19. You know, if you're reading about this in your history books, because of course you're going to be listening to me 20, 30, 40 years from now. Like what, you know, you're reading about this. We're in the middle of it right now. And so I'm noticing that as would be natural, but business owners are immediately kind of attaching an assumption that this is going to have a negative impact on their business, right? All of these changes, all of these things, immediate, oh my gosh, this isn't going to be good for my business. Oh my gosh, this is a challenge. So how would you advise entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, these business owners to embrace a yes and philosophy so they can rewrite this story that this has to mean something negative for their business? You know, I think one of the things like as people as people learn about the world of like improvisation or they hear it or they see someone like me talking about it with someone like you, Rita, on a podcast somewhere, it can feel a little bit like like manifest your dreams and, and right. <laughs> sit on the beach and namaste your way to success. I mean, I'm all here for that. I live in California, so we love a little namaste on the beach. But it can feel when someone hears the idea of yes and like, oh, we just have to love everything. Like everything that's happening to us, we have to be like, this is a gift. This is a blessing. And the reality is like in improv, 
like when you take your first improv class, they definitely tell you to say, just say yes and agree because it's easier. But when you start to get really good at it, you realize I don't have to agree that I like what the person said. So like if you were I, you and I were in a scene and you said, hey, I'm, I'm going to shoot you with this gun. I don't have to like the fact that you're going to shoot me, but I have to accept that you indeed have a gun and you indeed intend to shoot me. Now I can accept that and respond to it by heightening it by saying, and, but I don't have to like it. And people mistake it that the world of improv is about positivity all the time. Yes. It's about agreement. It's not about positivity. We can disagree. I can say no to you. This is the big, this is the, the the improv gods are going to come for me with this (laughs) is that I can say no but I still have to play long. Meaning you can say, hey, we need to go to, um, we're going to go to Carol's birthday party tonight and I've got Chardonnay. And I can be like, you know, I hate Chardonnay and I hate Carol. It doesn't matter. I still have to go to the party with you. Right, yeah. I just can play it from a place of I hate being here and see what happens. So that's what it is. It's about not negating reality. And so I think right now as people look around and it is funny, right? Every time I do an episode of the mic drop moment right now, Rita, I say to the people in the future who are listening to this, you know how this turns out. But right now, we don't know how this turns out. It's right. like a weird little time capsule to the future, these episodes, right? It's so true. It's so true. And I love, I, so I'm a very like woo-woo mindset gal in all of my coaching and in all of my life. And and I think people get positive thinking wrong all the time because they think it means you have to feel happy or you have to feel that it's a, a positive feeling. And it's like you can be grateful and in gratitude and also be really pissed off and you can be like grateful and also be feeling really sad and crying or being really scared like positive thinking doesn't mean you have to feel happy about anything at all and i think that self-help kind of does a disservice in making people believe that positive thinking means you have to feel good Right. Right. You have to, that you have to love what's happening. And the reality is like, you know, with a yes and mindset, it's saying, yes, this is actually the reality that's here and I can negate it. I can be mad at it. I can hate it. But if that's all I do, what happens? You know, it's, it's like, uh, I don't know if you know this, this, uh, she's a very self-help guru, Byron Katie. And yeah, I do. It has a yeah. book called Loving What Is. And, and what I think is so interesting about this, or, or the idea of radical acceptance, which comes from Buddha, um, is it isn't about saying, like, I'm cool with what's happening. It's about saying it is actually happening. So what do, do I want to do with that? And so I think right now for a lot of people um, thinking about their business and thinking about what's going on, thinking about their family, thinking about, you know, even loved ones who are hospitalized and ill right now, um, who are maybe working on the front lines as uh, caregivers in a facility or in grocery stores or restaurants or janitors. It's okay to say, this totally sucks. It's blown up my business. It's blown up my family. It's doing all these things. That's totally fine, but we still have to, we have to agree that it is happening so we could figure out what to do next with it. And like, I'm totally not okay with what's happening, but I could interview people like Mike Ganino, right? (laughs) Like while everybody's stuck in their house, I can use this as an opera. You have to take action. You still have to do something. I mean, you don't have to, but if you want to move ahead, right, you have to take some action. Yeah. Yeah. And, And sometimes that action is just simply saying like, labeling it. I I talked about this the other day of in improv, we label things. So like if you and I were in a scene together, Rita, if you had a face and I was like, oh, it feels like she's feeling insecure that I want to go to this event. I need to say that to you if that's how I'm responding because we don't have a script. So you don't know what I'm, you don't know what I'm doing. So I would say, 
ah, you have that insecure face again. Are you upset that I'm going to this party without you? And then you would say, ah, that's how I'm playing now. And then you would label me and you would be like, yeah, but you're always so flippant. You don't care about my feelings. Ah, now I get it. I'm playing the guy who doesn't care about your feelings and you're the insecure person. Now we can cook with Crisco, as they say. (laughs) And so I think the same thing is really valuable for labeling what's going on with us right now. What is the story that we are creating right now? And labeling it is the only way that we can sometimes figure out what to do with it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, how are you actually dealing with it or doing Because you are a man on the go, right? Every time I look at your Instagram account or I see you on a story, you're somewhere else. You're like in Mexico or you're here or you're there, you're traveling or you're there. So you are a man on the go. You like to travel. What has been the hardest for you with all of the regulations that are in place regarding social distancing and changing what you're doing in your day? In so many ways for me, that part of it is, is really positive. The like, oh, I'm, I'm staying home and I'm creating. This year, I really wanted to move to, to having some more digital offerings, some more group coaching offerings, and that sort of things. Normally, you know, like what you're referencing a lot is that I was often speaking to corporate audiences wherever they were. Sometimes it was really cool locations like Mexico and Spain, and other times it was like the middle of nowhere countrysides. But I really wanted to, I wanted to be doing less of that and doing more, more working with people directly. And so this aligned a little bit with those moves that I'm making. Now, how did it impact me otherwise? Well, not a whole bunch of people are out there thinking this is the right time to invest in creating a speaking revenue stream in my business. And even if they were to follow my advice on finding opportunities to speak, they ain't out there right now. as far as traditionally showing up to a place and talking to a live audience. And so for me, it impacted that a lot that I thought, okay, well, the thing that I do in the world, and if you think further than that, right? So I'm teaching people speaking. I was a speaker and a lot of my life before that was getting people to come to theaters and restaurants, whether I was in the restaurant industry, which I did for a long time or doing theater. And so it's like, wait, everything I know how to do my entire like, <laughs> my entire skill set is now gone. Just gone. Just and, gone. And gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you about that though. So I want I want to unpack the the speaking stuff later. But you just touched on something. So I want to talk about your past, your career, your trajectory, right? Because you were in the restaurant industry, which we know is getting hit hard right now. When yeah. you were a consultant, you consulted. <laughs> Airlines, hospitality, retail, and restaurants, right? Also, all of them hugely impacted by this more so than any other industry right now, right? So how do you find – so your what you do has been impacted because of who you do it for, but like you were part of that world too. So what what are your thoughts about what's happening to the hospitality industry or to the travel industry as a whole right now? I think it's so hard because there's also none of us, none of us are experts on this and know what to do because it's never happened where the entire world was shut down in this way ever. I mean, even with like the Great Depression, it wasn't like this didn't happen in the Great Depression. So nobody's an expert on this. And I I feel like there's a lot of people that are stepping out to be experts. And it's like, how can you be that? But what I think is really, you know, what I, what I look at and say is, There's so much opportunity to, as a society, to take a look back and say, when this is over, because I don't know right now, I I don't know what works and what doesn't work. I have no clue. 
But what I know is that so many places in business and the world have been impacted. And I think this gives us a chance to say, okay, when we come out of this, what does the world look like that we want? Are we okay? And this isn't any specific political leaning for anybody, but are we okay with jobs that we are right now saying are, are essential? Are we okay with those people not even making enough money to survive normally? With these jobs that we are saying are essential, are we okay with them not having healthcare in a world where right now we all need healthcare? So I think it gives us a chance to, in some way, there's an opportunity for people who've never thought about it before to take a look and say, okay, let me just evaluate what I think is right. Because what do they do? I have no idea. I think whatever they can do to try to to try to survive in this environment is is what we're seeing. I think we're going to see a lot of them not reopen. Yeah. I think that's a reality. I think we're going to see a lot of the franchise operations not reopen because there's a lot of density with that. This is like my like on the on the the restaurant yeah, I like it. report I like it. here for you. But I think we're going to see some of the franchises not reopen because they're just so densely packed that it does there need to be one that close. So I think we might see some of that. But I mean, who knows? Because what I do know is that they're going to try to figure out what to do uh, to keep going. Well, what I've really loved too is, well, I'm in a, right now I'm recording this from a small town in Virginia called Occoquan, Virginia, very historic, like little one street town and all, all the restaurants that are open. I just went next door to go get my, pick up my breakfast, right? And she's like, we are busier than we've ever been in our, really? in our existence because the community is coming together saying, hey, we need to support the businesses in our neighborhood. So we're going to order as much takeout or carry out or delivery as we absolutely positively can, right? Like, let's support them. So it's just interesting, again, how you would assume one thing, maybe something you just, you don't know, right? I mean, nobody knows. So I love your your focus on just like really be present and be evaluating and be thinking and just kind of stay in the, in, in which is not easy to do when you're full of fear or scarcity, right? And one of the things I think is really interesting is to look and say, well, wait a second, all these things that people were saying couldn't be done, shouldn't be done, wouldn't be done. We've got some like five-star fine dining restaurants who figured out how to do to go real quick. So I think that there might actually be some, I don't know, some interesting things that people learn from this because there was just, I mean, can we maybe go back to a period of time where we are allowed to buy takeout cocktails at restaurants? Like, there's all these rules that are getting bent right now that maybe we decide, oh, these weren't that bad anyway. Like, so, so I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting. And what I've seen is an industry that is responding in a very improvisational leadership type of way. And um, it's painful and it's really, really hard to be part of, I'm sure. And it's also really inspiring to see people find ways to rally, get creative and do what they need to do to survive. Yeah, I mean, that's all I can really say is it's just it's it, it's such a terrible thing that's happening. And at the same time, I, exciting isn't the right word, but it feels so interesting to be watching exactly what people are doing to be creative or where creativity or for me, community is really showing up in unanticipated ways. And it feels like, oh, like, here's the growth part, right? The growing through the dirt part that we need to get to. Um, so I want to ask a little bit, though. Is, before we hop into like the business stuff, I want to talk about wine with you a little <laughs> bit. I mean, who doesn't want to talk about wine with you? But I, you know, in a lot of the things that I read or heard, it was from like trailer to speaker, right? But I had, where was your trailer located when you were, I could not tell where you were from. Where are you originally from? I grew up in uh, San Diego County. So I was born, uh, born in San Diego and then lived there until I was about 14. 
And then we moved, uh, moved around a little bit after that, but San Diego County. Okay. Now you lived in Arizona for a little bit too, right? Yeah. It's really weird. I went to high school in Arizona, but I didn't live in Arizona. We lived right on the border of California and Arizona out in the desert. And so the California side, there was just houses there. And then we had to cross the river. I mean, there was a bridge. We didn't like swim across every day, like (laughs) canoe across the river. That would be cool. I could tell that. (laughs) That I'm going to tell that to my kids someday. I had to swim across the river. Um, but I had to go to school in Arizona, grocery shopping, banking, everything was in Arizona because there was not, there was just housing on the California okay. side. Okay. Now, when did you end up in Chicago? Cause I, I went to law school in Chicago. That's where I lived for a while. I was supposed to be in Chicago, April 30th. That ain't happening. I don't think, but what, um, what, uh, how did you get to Chicago? So I went to, I, I graduated college from the Arizona high school, uh, okay. and then went to college in Iowa for broadcast journalism, for mass communication, I dropped out of school to, uh, to go find myself and to figure out what I wanted in the world. I knew I wanted to, to go into entertainment and I knew that communicating to, I got it right when I went into mass communications as a college degree, because it was like, that's yes. And then broadcast journalism. Yes. Right. I want to be physically in front of people in some way. So I had that right. It just was like the wrong medium. So I dropped out of school and kind of wandered around a little bit, lived with an aunt in North Carolina, uh, went back to Arizona. And my grandma was like, what are you got to get out of here? I was like working at Pizza Hut. Uh, She was like, you got to get out of here and go do something. And she's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I just want to travel. I just want to go see things. She's like, well, here, go become a flight attendant. And I was like, all right. So that's how I got to Chicago is I got based in Chicago. I was 20 years old. Uh, I was a flight attendant for about a year and then 9-11 happened. And another improvisational moment, I lived in Chicago. I had an apartment. I had health insurance and bills. 9-11 happened and we all got laid off and furloughed. And I was like, what do I know how to do? And it was like, I know how to work in restaurants. So I found myself back in the restaurant world where I then spent oh, okay. a lot I of time. The, I didn't know about the flight attendant thing. So we lived in Chicago at the same time, which is super funny. So where, where in Chicago did you live? I actually? lived initially when I moved there, we lived near Wrigley Field. On Me too. So I lived on Sheffield. Irving Park. Oh, okay. I lived on Sheffield and Rot, like Sheffield and Roscoe, right by Halston, you know, like really up a block or yeah, two from Halston. We were neighbors. So, yeah, we were. We That's likely so were like in the same kind of like we Wrigley Bar at some point. Yes. I know it. <laughs> I think we absolutely had to be. So you did, you, you kind of, you were in, you worked your way up in the restaurant industry, oh, yeah. right? Server, sommelier, but let's stop on the sommelier thing. <laughs> I need to know a good recommendation because sommeliers always know the recommendations for like what we would call the cheap wine, right? So what is a good boxed wine? If I had to go out and get a boxed wine, I, you know, I, I know there are good ones out there. So what is a good boxed wine? This is one I'm going to be stumped on. I have no idea about boxed wine. I will oh, say that. I have no clue about boxed wine, but I do like the canned wines that we're seeing more and more. And there's some really cool ones from Oregon. There's some really good uh, canned Pinots from Oregon that I'm liking. I saw that recently and got one into that because you can throw it in like a cooler. This is, oh, this is, okay. Uh, Let me tell you the simple little rule. So some people, like I have a wine fridge. So we're keeping our wine in the wine fridge. It's always the right temp. That is not normal for most people. So if you want to like sommelier up your wine drinking experience a little bit without that. Like even if you just have like some basic two or three buck chuck, put your reds into the fridge 20 minutes before you want to drink them and take your whites out of the fridge 
20 minutes before you want to drink them. So let your whites warm up just a little and let your reds cool down a little bit. It will elevate your experience and make you look like such a pro with your friends. <laughs> you heard it right here first on the read of me. Everybody, so I pair every episode with either a wine or a coffee, right? So I always find a wine or a coffee that I pair every podcast episode with. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to think real hard about the one that I'm going to pair this episode with. But um, yeah, the I was sitting next to a table full of sommelier. I used to date uh, like a chef and so I'm sitting next to a table of sommeliers and they were all whispering about like, don't tell people, but like this boxed wine is absolutely delicious. And I couldn't hear what it was. And I was like, I don't usually get boxed wine, but if there's one that's delicious right now, I would like that because I need as much wine on hand as, as possible for all of this. <laughs> Have you been to Jerome, to Jerome, Arizona? Have you gone to uh, Maynard Keenan's uh, vineyard up there? I've not been there. I've been to um, Dos Cabezas in Arizona, though. Okay, so I hide when the minute that this is lifted, go to Jerome, Arizona. If you haven't watched the documentary Blood into Wine, Yo. watch it, right? Because the uh, lead singer of Tool, right, ends up going and getting a, a vineyard in Jerome, Arizona, Caduceus Cellars. Merkin Vineyard is the name of the vineyard. Caduceus Cellars is the name of his tasting room and wine. It is incredible. I went to Jerome, Arizona. I was thinking about it. I was like, Mike has to have been here. So I went there a while ago and I visited the tasting room and I knew I was in the right place, right? Jerome Rome is just this tiny, tiny town at the top of a hill with like just creative people that are literally walking the street, like just painting art and singing and playing the guitar and stuff in the middle of like this one street that goes through the whole town. There are just a couple hundred people there. Their t-shirts say, get the fuck out of the road, like Jerome, Arizona. <laughs> but I went to the tasting room and I knew I was in the right town when I was sitting there and this woman, this girl, well, this girl comes in and she's like, oh, is Maynard Keenan here? And the woman behind the counter was like, no. She's like, because I'm his biggest fan. And the woman was like, oh, cool, like buy some wine. The girl left and she was like, if that bitch was his biggest fan, she would know he's on tour right now in Canada and he wouldn't be here. She's like, and also, have you guys visited the town witch? And I was like, no, I have not visited the town witch. And she's like, oh, never mind. It's Thursday. She's doing yoga in the vortex. And I was like, I love this town so this much. Is where need to be. But this wine was incredible and it's won award after award after award after award. And his story of how he took the soil in Arizona at the top of this mountain that was not made for growing wine and turned it into this beautiful wine. It's just incredible. So, nice. Anyway. I saw that on um, Amazon Prime the other day, so I'm going to add it to my watch list. Oh, so good. You'll love it. You'll love it. <laughs> so now we're going to be best friends forever because you're going to be like, Rita gets me. Um, so <laughs> so you talk a lot about because storytelling and speaking is helping people find their voice. And, and one thing that I've heard you say is, you don't believe we ever really lose our voice. People are like, I need to find it. Like, they've lost it, right? And you're like, mm, I don't think we've ever lost it. It's just so much has gotten buried on top of it. And I found that really interesting. And there was a, a moment at the beginning of our interview where you said you kind of brought up, oh, you know, when you're seven in this moment. But I am curious, what was seven-year-old Mike like? Because there's like they, right? The, you, the they that are out there. They say that when you're seven, you're at your most authentic that you'll ever be because you're like old enough to have kind of known about yourself, but you're not old enough to actually care what people think. So you've developed, but you haven't really like started to care about other people's opinions yet. So at age seven, you are the most real or authentic you'll ever be. And so I'm curious if you had to describe yourself at seven, do you think that that's true? Yeah. If I think about seven, right? Cause that's third grade. Roughly, I think it's third I think grade. about there, yeah. Yeah. And so I think at the time, probably in third grade, what was I doing? I remember where we lived. We lived in these blue 
this blue apartment building in Ramona, California, which is like the woods, ranchy cattle area of San Diego County. And if I think about, I think about like, what would my teacher have said on my like report cards and things? And it would have been that I was really positive, that I was creative, that I loved to learn new things that I loved, whatever we were doing, I loved learning that new thing, whatever it was. I was, I was very able to get excited about lots of different things. And I remember putting on these little performances. Do you remember this show called Kids Incorporated? Oh, yes. Oh my God. We were meant to be best friends. I could sing the whole song. We're Kids Incorporated. Yes. K-I-D-S. I've never sung that on the podcast. This is great. All right. So anyway, yes, I remember Oh my God. It's so funny. I remember, it was so funny though, because even like you did that and I remembered it right away. It's like, everybody look around here. This special's going to come your way. You still forget it. So we would watch that. It was like a Saturday morning show and it was like these kids that would perform at like a ice cream parlor soda shop place and they would perform there and it's where we got um jennifer love hewitt from it's where yes. we got fergie from stacy ferguson was That's one right. of the people from That's there right. she was little uh where we got martika remember the song toy soldier oh my gosh yeah that's where martika yeah. came from i just I know that mario lopez of course. That's where yeah. he started before the other show, before uh, what was Saved by the Bell. And mm-hmm. so we would watch it on Saturday mornings. And then my friends and I would go like recreate our own version of the episodes. And so if I think about seven-year-old Mike, yeah, it it's someone who's like inherently positive, easily in love and interested in lots of different things and really wanted to sing songs in front of strangers. And so that yeah. feels about right now. My feels right. <laughs> my, my husband the other day said to me, he's like, can you like, uh, can we be done with the musical of the day? And it was like, but it wasn't even like I was singing a musical. I was just making up a musical as we went through the day. And I yeah. realized like, oh, this poor, this poor man doesn't normally have to be at home all day with me. Oh, he doesn't where I am hear it. creating oh. musicals about like, the dogs are walking yes. down the hall. And he's like, why are you n- narrating our life in musical form? And I thought, oh, yeah, this isn't normal for me, but not normal for you. <laughs> not normal for you. So your husband should meet my husband because I do the same thing as you. When I was seven, so my age seven, when I the year I was seven, Solid Gold was a huge show on TV. And I was dancing around my house to the show Solid yes. Gold. And I was going to be a Solid Gold dancer. And like then the show got canceled. And it was really, really sad. But performance, you know, that was the same thing. right? So I go around my house doing the same exact thing, like singing to the, I'm getting tomatoes and I'm going to make a salad. Yes. And my husband's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, what this is a, nobody. I mean, I thought everybody did this. He's like, no, nobody. But Mike doesn't. So now I'm going to tell him Mike doesn't. Um, but I find that really interesting because I think when I talk to people and I ask them that seven-year-old question, it helps them tap into a little bit of who they really were to find their voice. So what is, I mean, obviously life varies on top of this concept of what our voice is. How do you help people claim that again and tap back into that? Well, you know what it really is? It's about, and and this is one of the things I think that that maybe I look at it a little differently than some of the other folks out there, but I feel like from a public speaking perspective, that's just a conduit for saying what you're really here to say. And so I think that it's about having a point of view. It's about having a perspective. It's about looking, again, that that whole thing I was saying earlier about the WTF moments, the what the friction moments, those are formative moments because it's where you start to develop your perspective because that's what we really want. When we look at people, when we look at people who are thought leaders, whether they've they've done a really broad 
TED Talk or TEDx Talk that spread, or they have a TV show, or they have a book that everyone's talking about. It's Again, it's not the things that happen to them. It's the perspective and the point of view from it. And so when I'm working with people, that's what we're trying to find is what was the real moment that you had to go in and say, wait a second, this is what I'm going to do here. What were those? Because that's probably the thing we need to say. There's this really fun activity I do during like a retreat kind of weekend, Rita, you would love it. And so, you know, the show that's on uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. And so drag queens are notorious for just being heightened versions of people, right? Like often you'll see someone who goes into drag and when they're not in drag, they're quite calm and chill and not that... Uh, not that bold, honestly. And then they get into drag and it's like an alter ego, another persona comes. And so one of the things I do with a lot of the, and it's often women in my in my events, they'll work on a story. They'll work on some place where they had a point of view, something they want to share. They'll work on the story, outline it. Then we'll have drag queens come in. They get totally remade over. And then they will do the story again from that person's perspective. You know, it's interesting. That version is the version they probably should really be sharing in the world. Because it's the version where you say, if I didn't, if I wasn't worried if someone was going to like me, if I wasn't worried, if I was already like, hey, I am my bold self, I'm going to step out here and I'm going to say the thing I need to say, what would that be? And what's interesting is that's the message that most people would, the people who need to hear from you, that's the message you're going to resonate with. And that's what we need to get out there and say. So a question I ask people all the time is, that how did you do it? It's what was the mindset behind it that allowed you to do the thing? And you kind of answered that question for it. It's like, so it's like, sure, get into drag and like do, be bold. But it's like, what's the mindset behind that that allows you to do it? And it's if I knew that I was enough or if I knew that this would work out or if I knew that everything would be safe, if I just blah, 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 then I would what? Right. Because my my if we got to the thing under the thing under the thing, you know, we all have that thing under the thing under the thing. And my thing under the thing is my enoughness, right? And like being enough. So like my question is always, if I knew that I was enough, then what would I do in this situation? And what would I say? Because people have a hard time really owning their point of, like stating their point of view. They know their points of view, but when it comes to entrepreneurship or speaking, they tend to play it safe and want to be really generic, which I think is keeping them from getting speaking (laughs) engagements, right? Because they're just sounding very cookie cutter generic. So I love that you share that around like, if you knew, right, then what would your point of view be? What right. would your story be? What would you yeah. share? It's, it's this idea that like, if you change your perspective to say, I already have all of the love I need. I'm already worthy of all of the love. And if that's true, what would I say? Because I, and this is, we're going to go, this is where we're going to do our little woo-woo meters are going to clang high together, Rita, is yeah. I believe that we do everything that we do in life because we are seeking love. I really believe that every single decision we make, every time that we, uh, we tamp down, we dampen our spirit, our energy. We don't say the thing. We don't do the thing. We don't show up as like what we know is burning inside of us. And this is why we don't need to find our voice. It's in there. And the reason that we feel anxiety, stress, unhappiness often is because we're not listening to our own selves. Because we think that we have to use some other voice in order to be worthy of love. But what if you accepted that I'm already worthy of love? I don't have to earn that. The fact that I'm here and breathing means I'm worthy of love. And right now what I'm doing is going out there and sharing a message that someone else might need to hear. And it's not that I'm seeking their love because I already have their love. 
I already have it and I'm not going to lose it. So I'm just serving her. Oh, that's so good, guys. Like, listen to that. And then then go back and listen to my last interview with Esther Boykin about self-love where she's a therapist and she talked all about the same thing, right? About, you know, just assume you already have kind of the love. You're, you're, you, you're worthy because you're breathing, right? Which in D.C., you'll meet people and they'll go, no, but like, I thought my worth was defined by what I do. I mean, they'll just own it by like getting accomplishments and awards and accolades. And so I love, I mean, that's such a, that's the key to everything. And that's why we're scared of rejection or we're scared of failure because we're scared we're going to lose the love and the admiration of the people that we, we care about the most. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about speaking because I know that this is what my audience is really here in terms of I'm just curious, do you think the profession as a whole, the industry as a whole is going to change because of what's happening right right now? I mean, I know that we say that speaking, here's kind of a reframe. We say, yes, the speaking engagements aren't there true. Also, I've been hired for three virtual speaking engagements, right, since this has happened. And then I've been asked to speak for free to like different memberships of, of associations who are trying to put bonus programming into their associations right now. Do you think that this is a temporary thing or do you think this might transition the industry a little bit towards event organizers and companies realizing virtual events are a thing and virtual speaking should be embraced more. I think it's going to be interesting, right? Because one of the things that people were able to do with virtual and doing summits and doing things was it was relatively easy to stand out because you were delivering something virtually. But I think what's going to happen is we're going to start to see where the the production level of that when we're all doing Zoom, you no longer stand out because you're sharing your message on Zoom. And so I think the production level for paid speakers is going to have to go up a little bit here. Uh, I think that will be something that we'll see is that like, oh, wait, I have the same thing with podcasts. I think that when everyone has a podcast, there's part of it that's that's using your own unique voice, you'll resonate with the right people. If you want like just a lot of people to be listening and have a big audience, it's also about like what goes into the production level of it. How does it sound? Because there's so it's so easy to do these days. So I think that's one thing we'll see is the the quality level is going to go up because when the quality level doesn't go up, like if someone reached out and said, Hey, can you, can I hire you to help me design my workshop that I normally do live? I'd like to do these virtual versions. And I said, Great. First off, you should not be doing a seven-hour virtual workshop. Right. Shouldn't. Sorry. I I just think that that's not the right way to handle it. What you should do is create a blend it. And what we ended up doing, uh, this was one of the things I helped someone with, was designing an interactive digital experience where it was more like an online course slash group coaching, which is new in the corporate world. They're not used to that. And so it was, hey, there's a 30-minute recorded content, there's some activities, and then we're doing like a 45-minute group coaching live session each week. That's the kind of thing because a seven-hour workshop, it's just no one should be put through that. And so there's a different thing that has to happen for engagement. There's a different thing that has to happen there. So I think some of the virtual stuff is probably not very good. (laughs) And I think that that will leave it to people saying, oh my gosh, it was so much better when we were in person. I think there's going to be a rebound of people being like, we want to see each other again and have that. So I don't know that it'll completely shift it, but I think it will open up some people. I say this all of the time to my clients and students is stop thinking of yourself as a speaker. Because if you thought of yourself as a speaker, you're in trouble right now. Right. If that's all you are, is someone who gets in front of people and talks on a stage in person, you're in trouble right now. What you should think, and don't even introduce yourself as a speaker. What I think we should be doing is saying, what is the unique thing I help people get and do? How am I a problem solver? What problem do I solve? And 
Yes, I do that via speaking sometimes when people need that. Sometimes I do it with books. Sometimes I do it with workshops. Sometimes I do it with courses. Sometimes I do it with content. That's how we should be looking at each other. And speaking can be a part of your revenue stream. It could be 90% of your revenue stream if you want. It could be 50%. It could be 10%. But I think the people that are struggling right now are the people that that's all they did and that's all that they saw themselves as. And so now it's like, well, what am I if I'm not that? The people that had a really strong point of view, a really strong perspective, and were able to take their ideas, find an audience and translate them, I think those people are going to be fine because we're going to find other ways of doing it. Yeah, it's an ability to pivot, but it comes from not putting all of, I think the paint yourself into a corner strategy with anything in your business at all is not good. So you have to diversify how you're doing things and what you're what you're doing. I know that people in my audience, so in my my community, I run this community called the All In Entrepreneur, and it's for women entrepreneurs. It's got, I think right now, like 5,000 women in it on Facebook, but a lot of them are speaking for free to build their business. Many of them want to move into paid speaking and some are just starting. I think I want to use speaking to pay, you know, to build my business or maybe get paid for it. I don't know. What should those people be doing right now to help position themselves for what's going to happen when social dis- distancing restrictions are lifted and there is a return to events? What are some of the best things for people to do now and to prepare for what's coming? Yeah. So a few things. One is when it comes to speaking, one of the things that happens a lot, and I, and I think it's a useful reframe, is we often think like, oh, the goal is I'm going to speak for free until someone pays me. I'm going to speak for free until someday somebody gives me So someday me somebody spot. just walks up to me and gives me money and yeah. says, you should get paid for this. Yeah. And, and I think there's, a, when I teach, I teach, I teach my students that there's three models. There's speak for free, speak for fee, and mm-hmm. speak for me. So speak for free is most of the breakout speakers, like you'll go to a conference and let's say that there's 50 breakouts and two keynotes. Probably the keynotes are the only ones getting paid. For me, in the beginning, I just wanted that keynote spot. Eventually, what I realized is, oh, wait a second, I can make money in these breakouts in other ways. So it's being more intentional because if your intention, for example, when I first started speaking, I was speaking to hotels and restaurant industry. So I would go and I would speak for free. I would pay my own way. I would get to this breakout room. And my, my talk was designed so they would say, wow, he's a really great keynote speaker. The challenge was that it was to a bunch of independent hotel and restaurant operators. And guess what? They were never going to buy a keynote speech. Mm -hmm. And so I realized like, oh, I'm speaking to these people for exposure and for future leads. And it will never be a future lead because all they think I do is do keynote speeches. And so I had to alter it so that it was clear that like, oh, I could work with people in the consulting capacity. I could work with them in a workshop. And I had to redesign my talk, my website the landing page they would go to to get notes from the talk. I had to redesign that so that it was set up so that it actually did what I wanted it to do. So if you're thinking I'm speaking for free, don't do it with the goal of someday getting the keynote. Let that be gravy. But I'll tell you this, like I've been paid, uh, I've been paid, the most I've been paid so far, I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I'll let the, the veil down, uh, is $18,000 for a keynote. I'm typically between twelve dollars and $15,000 for a keynote. I've made $100,000 from a breakout room, yeah, from a breakout where room. I didn't get paid. I didn't sell anything on stage. I wasn't there selling a program, but I made it clear how I worked with other people like them. And I was able to generate $100,000 from that one talk that I gave for free. So when we're thinking of speak for free, I want everyone to reframe it and not think I speak for free until someday they give me the keynote. Forget that. Uh. 
And I mean, speaking for free, I think that that kind of puts a cloud on it anyway, because yeah. I have a lot of people say, but Rita, I don't want to speak for free because people don't value free and I want to only speak for money. I'm like, you don't get the opportunities for everybody, the audience and you when you're in a breakout room. You can't, you can't, it's not selling from the stage, but it's how you build your, your community. It's how you build your, it's how you get people on the phone with you to talk about more. It's how other people will come up to you and say, whatever it is. And it's, so you're not doing it for free. You're getting things, but it might not be cash dollars in hand that day. There's still a monetary value oh, yeah. to what you're getting, you know? Um, I love it. I love breakouts. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd like to be a keynote one day, but I don't know that what I do or what I talk about actually lends itself very well to yeah. being the keynote, right? And that's okay. Like for a while, it was like, oh, well, I'm not going to be a speaker then if I can't. It's like, no, I love it. I love what I'm I'm doing. Yeah. I, I, I really like, so you mentioned something about speaker styles. You think that they're different speaker styles and you've created a quiz to help people identify their speaker styles. What what are these speaker styles? <laughs> what are the p- possible styles? Yeah. So one of the things that, that I always believed when I've been working with people with um, storytelling and public speaking is that uh, I kept seeing this pressure from everyone to be a certain kind of speaker. Like we've seen uh, some folks at the highest levels and we think, okay, I've got to be like a Tony Robbins style. I've got to be Rachel Hollis. I've got to be Brene Brown. I've got to be Simon Sinek. I've got to be like that. And the reality is that the reason that all of those people resonate is because they are most themselves. Like we love when people are really themselves in front of others. And so if you are trying to be them or like them, and that is not you, you are never going to reach that level because the reason that they've reached that level is because they're being them. And so we started looking at it, my partner that I run this group, the Spotlight Academy with, we started looking at it to say it's an incubator, like 90-day incubator, where we work with people to help them create their signature message and then build a speech, a workshop, other assets, if they want to do a podcast, if they want to do a, a series, that kind of thing. And so we sat down and we looked at it and we said, okay, well, is there one style that does better? Is there one style that works? And what we realized from looking at a bunch of TEDx talks, the highest rated ones, the lowest rated ones, what we found over and over is when the person was able to be most themselves in front of others, it was when it resonated. And so we started looking and saying, okay, what is it? So we've got this quadrant essentially. And in each of them is a different factor. And there's a score that we give that which determines your speaking style. The four boxes are, what is your motivation to speak? Meaning in that speech or in that message, are you trying to really drive the audience to take action? Like this is your classic motivational speaker, coach, almost sounds like a preacher. Like, I really need you to take action. Or is it lower? Like you're just, you know what, I'm here and like you do what you want, but do you have a high motive when you're speaking? The other is, do you naturally use storytelling? What's your ability there? The third one is, do you use images? Do you use graphics? How well do you incorporate those? And then the fourth one is structure. How structured is your content and easy to follow? Based on the scores there, we then give you one of our six styles. The six styles are the motivating maverick. Okay. This is that classic rah, rah, you're going to, I'm going to tell you, you've got to take action. Hustle. So here's get a it. question. If the motivating maverick was a wine, what kind of wine would motivating maverick? The motivating maverick would probably be like a a uh like a Zinfandel, like a California Zinfandel from like okay. Alexander Valley Dry Creek, where it's like big Paso, like big, big, big Zinfandel. Like I'm here, you're you're gonna know it's me. I'm gonna yeah. get you to where you wanna go, and I've got 15% alcohol to take you there. <laughs> 
love it. Okay, so it's yes. motivating maverick. Then there's persuasive entertainer. These are people who lead with story really naturally. They love to make the audience laugh, cry. Um, that's what I am. I fall into that bucket. Our downfall is that sometimes there's not a lot of structure. So people are like, I love them. Oh my God. And they're like, wait, what did he say? I don't even remember. <laughs> What was the point of all yeah, of it? it was but great. I loved it I loved and it. I feel good <laughs> and I and I want more, but like what was going on there? Then another one is the inspiring advisor. This is someone who does really, really well with understanding what does the audience really need to hear and how do I guide them towards that? And they might use a little bit of story, but it's not high on their list. Structure a little bit lower. This is like a Brene Brown. Okay. And again, with practice, we all kind of end up getting to a level that's like, hey, we're really good, but it's, it's leveraging what you're good at. There's the convincing educator. These are your classic teacher styles. They love their structure. They love their curriculum. They're high on motive because they want you to learn the thing, but often they'll find themselves, whether they're teaching two people or 500 people, they sound the same. Um, and so that's the convincing educator. We've got the innovative visionary. This is someone who loves Q&A sessions. They see a future for us, for you, for me, and they want to describe it. And sometimes in developing a talk, they get really like, ah, you're not getting it. You're uh, yeah. not taking you there. So they love Q&A so they can respond to the audience. This is like an Elon Musk, really, really okay. great with this kind of thing. And then the, the sixth one, the final one is the creative curator. This is the person you look at and you're like, they have the most beautifully designed slides when they say something it's not them being braggadocious it's not them elaborating it's not hyperbole it is researched backed they can provide you with it they've got the footnotes but they're not natural storytellers and they really can struggle if something goes off uh, doesn't happen or they don't have a lot of time to build it so those are the six styles and then based on which one you are uh, we then have some ideas for how you could leverage that to create more interesting, engaging content, to create better talks, to think about designing them. Uh, and it was really fun. And it's been fun to see people taking the quiz and finding out which one they are and, and saying, oh my gosh, my grandma even took it. And she teaches, she runs the elections for her county that she, uh, that she lives in. She runs the elections over there. And so she teaches every, every time there's an election, she has to take these volunteers and teach them. So it's really funny. She was saying, oh yeah, I do do it that way. I, she's an inspiring advisor. And she's like, oh, that's right. I do think about who's here. How do they need the message? How would I change it? What do they want to know about? I need to question them. I need to understand them. And, uh, and so it was really fun that even my grandma took it. Oh my gosh, I love that. And so you, everybody out there who's like, hey, I want to speak. I don't, what do I, these are the kinds of things you do now, right? You work yes. on finding your personality, your voice, your, this is the time so that when people are hiring speakers again, full force, you're prepared and you're ready and you're not just starting because then you'll be behind. So if somebody like me wants to take this quiz, where do they go to take the quiz? Super easy. You go to thespotlightacademy.com, thespotlightacademy.com slash quiz. So the spotlightacademy.com slash quiz, it'll guide you through. Uh, And then we email you, we send you like the landing page that has like, what are your risks? What are you great at? Why do audiences love you? We even have like fun things like what would your motto be? What would your most likely to be be? Uh, So it's pretty fun little, you get your results and you kind of say like, oh yeah, this is me. Guys, don't worry about getting on Mike's list. I'm on Mike's mailing list. I love it. He's one of the only people besides Rachel Alberts that I open all of the emails that I get because they're fun. I mean, you have that motto of how can I make it fun? How can I make everything I do fun? Guys, that that 
permeates into his emails. You will love being on on his email list. Thank so, you. Uh, and in fact, you know, there was a book you were taught. So when you started your podcast, you shared a book about interviewing, right, that you were reading. Yeah. Um, I went and bought that book. I'm like in the middle of that book, but I'm like, oh, Mike is inspiring me to want to be a better interviewer because that was something I wanted to do. It was really funny. I asked a couple of news reporters in the DC area that I'm friends with, how do you guys work on your interview skills? What have you done? To-? They're like, no, I don't know. I just got to ask some questions and this happens. And I'm like, I need a resource. And literally that day that I said it out loud, your story was like, here's a book that really helps you with your interview skills. I was like, thank you so much. So how is your podcast going? How do you find that to be different than the speaking on stage or what are the differences for you? Do you enjoy it? Yeah, I love doing it. You know, it's interesting too, Rita, because it it goes back to what you were just saying of what should people be working on now? And I think it's not just the behind the scenes things of like organize your pieces, but it's really finding how do I get to the core of what I'm about? How do I shape that? How do I start talking it? How do I start getting an audience who wants to hear that? So that when there's, there's, So the audience is ready so that when there is a stage to be on, it's like, oh, of course it's you because we've been listening to you, hearing you. We really love what you're saying over here and over there. And so for me, the podcast has been really fun because it is different than the other things I do. I mean, in so many places I show up, I'm the expert. And Mm -hmm. so on the podcast, it's really fun to interview other people. And And I really, over time, if you listen like the first one versus the later ones, it's gone from... In the beginning, I was interviewing people and I realized, oh, this isn't, as you know, the guests don't really, the the audience doesn't come here because of the guests. They come here because they want to hear Rita's interaction with Mike, but they don't know who Mike is. Your audience doesn't know who I am. And, and yeah, there's some people who follow me that when I share this episode, they'll come and listen, but your audience loves your, who you curate, how you talk to them, what you ask them. And so what I thought in the beginning was, oh, people are coming here because they want to hear my guest. And I realized, no. People are coming here to hear my interaction with this guest. And as soon as I realized that, I started liking it even more. It was pretty quick for me, the first couple of episodes. I was like, wait a second, this feels weird. I don't love it. What do I do? And it's like, oh, I just need to, this is just me having a conversation and not me interviewing. And that made it a lot more. But for me, it's, it's another version of what I do on stage. It's just different, but it's still me playing from my center and me playing from my core. Well, that's the thing, right? When you get to the core, and I'm still trying to dig to my core, which is why I'm probably going to you know, sign up for anything that Mike does, guys. Just FYI, <laughs> if you want to work alongside Rita one day, you can sign up for what Mike does. But um, getting, to the, getting to the core, that will touch everything you do, every piece of content you put out, however you put it out, whether it's speaking or you're just writing a Facebook post or you're doing a, an Instagram story or whatever, right? Like it really all needs to come to that core. You're going to confuse people about who you are and what you stand for and confuse people might like you, but they don't know what to do with you, right? They're like, that, like that's cool, but I, I don't really know how I'm supposed to continue to interact with you on this, so I'm going to go to this other person. So I love that because that is so important for everything. And that's never going to change. Whatever you do to build your business, it's got to come from this core place. And so I think that that's wonderful. Um, and I'm excited. So is the Spotlight Academy the way that people would work with you then to be able to to do that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's super easy. If you find me either through, you know, you just go to Mike Ganino and you find all the Mike Ganino things, or you you hook up with us over at the Spotlight Academy. Uh, it's me you're going to find. So uh, we could talk about it. The Spotlight Academy, when we relaunch that. It's this 90-day incubator we go through. We find all those things. Um, And so right now, and it ends in a live event. We get together and we actually tell some of these stories together. And so uh, we'll get that back going when it's going. Right now, what I'm doing with people is exactly what you're saying, working with them on 
really finding what are the stories that define them and then how do they create a message, a brand, and a platform around that. And then we weave that through and we say, what would that look like on a podcast? What would that look like in a speech? What would that look like in a book? I feel like Dr. Seuss, right? Like in a box with a fox wearing (laughs) socks, what would it look like? Because that's when you then know, oh, I'm never not being me. I'm always being me. And I might just look at different things because we're not surprised when we see something that Oprah does or Jennifer Lopez does or Barack Obama does. We're not surprised by these things because they're playing from their core. And when we do that as well, it becomes very easy to look around at the world and express. This is one of the challenges people have with content is that they look around and they think, oh, I don't know what to say. So I'm going to do copycat content on whatever everyone else is saying because they haven't done the work to say, what is my unique perspective and point of view? Because once you have that down, you can look at anything and say, okay, this is how I feel about this thing. Now let me share that in a way that's helpful. Oh, I love that. That's so good. So it's funny because I you said earlier, you know, right now while you're at home is the time that you can work on some like group programs or like an online course that you're trying to work on. And I listened to an interview that you did with um, your friend, Jason. Right, Jason Friswell, is that it? Yeah. yeah. So, and you said, oh, and I'm trying to do this this course, but like, it's a fun, like the email to the funnel, to the funnel, to the email, to the whatever. And it's just not like what, how I think or what I do, right? And my first question when I thought that is, well, then why are you doing it that way, right? Like, it doesn't have to be done that if that's the thing that's holding you back from doing it. I'm like, Mike, why are you, why are you, I like actually said out loud to the phone, I'm like, why are you doing it that way? You don't have to do it that way, Mike. You can do it any way you want to, right? So it's like that core, like, you know, your core, you could look at that and say, well, that's the way everybody else yeah. does this, right? But I can do it. it. And it makes you able, I think, to step into so much more, which is a, a question I want to ask you, because it seems like you're really comfortable with yourself and with everything that you're doing. But where is somewhere that you're trying to stretch into the next area where you are encountering, you know, leaving your comfort zone and stepping into something that's totally uncomfortable to you? I think right now, the thing that I'm most stretched by is the move to a more digital digital experience with me. And so yeah. the podcast was the beginning of that, uh, working on the Spotlight Academy, which we're launching. I'm doing this, um, this shorter, more less group coaching and more automated kind of like ready program called the Story Boss Academy. And so that's an eight-week program that people go through and it helps them find the different stories. So the content is easy for me. The what do I want to say? How can I be helpful? What's my unique patch of grass here? That's very easy for me because like you said, uh, I am really comfortable with that. Um, How to show up in it so that it's me and my personality and the people that like that will show up and the people that don't, I don't need, I'm good. What's the stretch for me there is thinking through all of the, it it is a digital project, it is a digital thing. So there is a way to say, okay, how do I bring people to that? And so that's stretching to say, okay, What's the part that I need to set up? What's the part that I can do in my unique way? That's the place where I'm probably like feeling the most uh, friction or the most insecure right now is sorting out what all that looks like. It's where I'm seeking out advisors and learning right now. Yeah, I love that because you are a very personal person, like personal touch points, personal. And you do feel that from you digitally, but that becomes a struggle when you're trying to move to something like a course or something that feels a little more removed when you're a relationship-based, you know, extroverted, in-person person. It's how do I capture that feeling even in a way that feels very removed from that, right? That's hard. Yeah. And like you mentioned from Jason's podcast that I was on, it's the being on video very natural for me. 
feels very good. I'm fine being on camera. I'm fine recording and I'm fine putting it in something. It's the, okay, wait, I'm building a digital audience part. So I need them to go sign up for something. And then you have to like email them things and you have to tell them things. And then you have to like put them in like a tagging sequence. So you know who bought what and that, that part uh, I look at it and I think, oh my gosh, why, what am I doing? And, and there's, there's a, an element of that. That's like someone else can do that. And, and we'll get there. Right. And there's an element of it. Like, I just want to understand it enough. So I know what I'm having. So it has more value to me if I've done it. And I say, I never want to do that again. Now that's a good thing for the person I hire because I'm willing to pay them more because I realize how much I don't want to do it. So right, how much I don't want to do. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah I, I yeah. understand it. And I understand it enough to know I never want to do this ever again. It's and so, so true. I'm going to give this to somebody else now. So, and also I think you said some, when, when the world reopens, right. I, I saw something about a travel and wine, like TV show that you're maybe kind of exploring. a little <laughs> so, bit. Right? So I'm working on two books right now. One is around not necessarily public speaking, but about, how we leverage our unique perspective on the world to go create these things. And so that's where the name for the show, Mike Drop Moment, came from. It's obviously a play on my name, Mike. So the Mike Drop Moment podcast came from me. Like I realized that when we have that Mike Drop Moment in life, when we have it on stage or you know anywhere in a boardroom, in a podcast, in a video, talking to a clerk at a store, we have Mike Drop Moment when we are showing up as us and it resonates with other people audiences, customers, um, clients have a mic drop moment with us when they say, oh my gosh, that person so gets me, that person gets it. And so it's this dual thing. And I thought, what are all the ways we have those? And so I'm working on this book that's around the idea of like how to find your mic drop moments in life. And it's a little bit about getting to the core of who you are. It's about confidence. It's about messaging. It's about saying the thing and all of that, but it's not necessarily like a, here's how to be a public speaker, but it definitely includes that because speaking is one of the ways we, we have those moments. And then the other one I'm working on is this really fun project around food and wine. I, I obviously love food and wine and I really, really obsessed with, with California living. And so I'm working on this other book that's all about the wine regions of Southern California and Baja California and like where those came from and what's going on and that kind of thing. And, I, and I'm obsessed with acid, like the acid in food, the acid in wine. And I think in wine, sometimes we talk about alcohol, we talk about the flavors, we talk about wood, we talk about all <laughs> these things, but we don't talk a lot about acid. Yeah. It, is the, it is the backbone of why we like it. And in fact, why we probably started drinking it even more was how it complemented food because of the acid in the wine. And so I want to do this really cool travel slash food and wine book about Southern California, Baja California, um, and Arizona and Mexico. It's all the regions that used to be uh, this area called Alta California, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so it's all of those regions. And so, uh, so I'll be doing uh, Arizona in it, Mexico. So for New Mexico, Baja. So we'll see. So that's the fun little thing. And then an associated, like, uh, associated YouTube series kind of thing. So we'll see. But it's all, it's all tied to story. Like, I, you know, when you think about food, when you think about wine, when you think about it all, it's all storytelling. I, the reason that you order whatever you order from the menu usually, or the wine that you pick or where you go to travel is the story that you either heard about it or the story that you end up telling about it or that it's all so related to what you do. And I think that that's, that's incredible. And so I can't wait, I can't wait to read everything you do. So now I close out my, my episodes with like a quick lightning round where I just ask you a question. I don't want you to like as an improv 
clever. You should be able to do this really good, right? Like, <laughs> don't overthink it. Just answer. There are not many questions. Okay. Here, but, okay. What podcasts are on your podcast playlist right now? I'm really loving the podcast from Second City Works. Second City Works is the corporate division of that. And so I think it's called Getting to Yes And. But if you look up like Second City Works podcast, that one I'm really uh, loving and listening to a lot right now. And what about books on your nightstand? What books would we find on your nightstand? Ooh, books on my nightstand. I'm reading a book called The New California Wine. And I'm also reading Untamed by Glennon, uh, Glennon Doyle. Glennon, yeah. no. Glennon, yeah. Glennon Doyle. Yeah. Glenn Glenn, Doyle, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Yep. Um, what is a life motto that you like to kind of govern your life? If you had to pick one motto right now to govern your life, by what would that be? One motto is uh, have another sip. <laughs> That's what I'm living by <laughs> right now. It. That'll be your next podcast. I yes. love that. And um, <laughs> so what would something be, what would one thing be that people would be surprised to learn about you? You're a pretty open book, but what, what, what would people be surprised, surprised. to learn Surprised. I'm really, uh, this is really strange. I am relatively like as a 40 year old man, almost 40, my birthday's in, in late April. As a 40 year old man, I'm relatively scared of the dark. Like really? I'm like a okay. leave the bathroom door open with the light on in a hotel kind of guy. Like, okay. yeah, that's pretty weird. I like that. And what is one piece of advice that you would like to leave my, my audience with mainly solopreneurs, mainly entrepreneurs, although I have a, a, a variety, but mainly that's who listens. What would a piece of advice be from Mike right now? I would say that, that probably if you're, if you're out there and you're, you're lost and you're looking and you're searching, you probably know what it is that you want to do. You probably know what it is that you want to say. You probably know how you want to show up. And the reason you're not doing it, the reason you feel like you need to find your voice and you don't, you need to develop your voice and you need to start listening to your voice is because we're scared of not being loved. We're scared of not being enough. We're scared of it not resonating. And the truth is, is that your next step and your next action, you already know what to do. So love yourself enough because everyone else already loves you enough. Love yourself enough to listen to that voice and do the thing. So good. And Mike, how can people find it? Where, where are the best places to follow you for people to find more about you? Yeah, I'm probably the most active on Instagram uh, socially. So you can find me at Mike Ganino, uh, G-A-N-I-N-O there. I'm Mike Ganino on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Pinterest, on all the places. But where I have the most interesting conversations and DM conversations is over on Instagram. And then at MikeGanino.com, you can find me. And uh, yeah, I'm easy to find. Okay. Great. And we're going to put all of it, guys, in the show notes for you, everything that we talked about. And Mike, I want to say thank you so much again for being here. I really appreciated your time. Um, and everyone, I will talk to you next week on another episode of the Read and Mimi Do It show. Hey, before you go, thank you for listening to my show. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcast, and leave a review. It'll only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the Read and Mimi Do It show. And my goal is to share this business-boosting and life-changing content with as many people as possible. In fact, because I value your time so much, every month, one reviewer will win a free coaching call with me. So if you want to get laser-focused and go all-in on the results that you most want in your business, then leave a review now. And then head on over to readamimidoit.com where you can find the show notes from today's episode.